This is Time to Say Goodbye, a podcast that I, Jay Kang, started with two of my friends, Tammy Kim and Andy Liu. Uh, We started this because Asia and Asian Americans in particular have been a large part of the conversation about coronavirus outbreak and the pandemic in a way that, you know, feels a little bit unfamiliar and honestly a little bit uncomfortable to, (laughs) to us who are usually relegated or at least and also very comfortable being on the sidelines of a lot of these conversations. And we thought that our three perspectives, Andy being a history uh, professor, Chinese history professor, and uh, Tammy being a journalist who covers a lot of things around labor, but also does a lot of reporting in Korea, thought that we could give you a good perspective and some informative discussions and conversations and guests about what actually was going on. You know, we understand that, uh, you know, this outbreak will not be forever, that the pandemic will one day be over. And then we hope to, you know, just transition into a podcast about politics, about, you know, specifically leftist politics, organizing, and uh, and a lot of history and maybe even some basketball as uh, two of the three of us are huge NBA fans. So we hope you'll enjoy. Please subscribe uh, through your favorite podcast player. And um, maybe down the line, we'll even give you a sense of how you might be able to, you know, help contribute and help us keep the lights on. But for now, um, you know, this is our service to you. This is a uh, something that we hope will help you understand some of the issues around coronavirus in Asia. Andy, uh, you're, how, how is teaching going during uh, this, this time here? Uh, it's kind of surreal. Um, I've been asking my students what they think about, do they want to do these live lectures? And I think the consensus, I think there's this really weird culture where up for a lot of professors where we feel like if you like read the, if you read the internet, everyone says like, take it easy. Everyone's got a lot of things going on in their life, but I think a lot of us don't really want to be that, that one. So I feel like a lot of us are putting on unnecessary internal pressure. Tammy, how are you doing? I'm okay. Sort of floating between here and Korea where I was hoping to spend some time reporting. But um, I've been interviewing a friend who's living in the 14-day quarantine out of the airport. So, um, Oh, yeah. yeah. The, thing is, the thing is wild. Like, it's I've amazing. I've seen the photos of it. There seems, every day there seems to be like a big tweet thread of somebody who's going through it. Yeah. And, Half of the half of, uh, do they have like different quarantines? Because some of the quarantines look totally nice, and they bring you like all sorts of stuff. Like you know, they bring you like shin ramen and like uh, and gochujang and everything. And then the other stuff looks like you're living almost in like a like the worst college freshman dormitory <laughs> that you could ever imagine with somebody else. Yeah, like, I think, uh, that, What are the actual conditions there like? I think the second one that you're talking about is the one now that they're putting in everyone after they land at Incheon. So they have to go mm-hmm. to a city called Azhan, which is like an hour and a half, two hours away. And it's basically like a retired like police academy building. <laughs> so everyone's living oh, really? in like essentially like a cell and they basically eat like 7-Eleven like bento boxes all day. So, yeah, <laughs> it's less than ideal. Yeah. I, I saw something where like it, they had found somebody wandering the halls because you're not allowed to <laughs> le- leave the tiny room that you're in and they deported that person almost immediately because the person yeah. was like 
I don't know what he was doing, but I just imagine this guy like going a little stir crazy or, or maybe, you know, and, and knocking on doors and be like, hey, what's up? You know, exactly. <laughs> how's quarantine going for yeah, you? Yeah, that is the and agreement then they just, that like, if you immediately... step out of your cell, you get deported. But I guess there was a loose one. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like, would, would you go? Would you put yourself through that to uh, to go to Korea for a little yeah, bit? Yeah, attention all editors. Yeah. Would, uh, <laughs> yeah that's... Is that all paid for? Is the quarantine all paid for? You have to for the fourteen day one out of the airport. You have to you have to pay like about a hundred bucks a day. Okay. So no, wow. but you sign the agreement before you get your boarding pass. Is that a lot by so Korea by Korea standards? No. Like a hotel room. I think that's kind of a deal, and honestly, I'm sort of convinced this is like a Korean propaganda project now because it's making them look really amazing. All the tweet, Twitter threads are like yeah. approved by Moon Jae In. I think Taiwan is in the same thing. It's all, yeah, there's a lot of soft power. Yeah, we Hong Kong too. <laughs> We yeah. Could, yeah, we could talk about that soon because uh, I think the ways in which the Western media has sort of yeah. glommed on to these examples is really funny because <laughs> yeah. uh, like they, they see they have no idea like what the actual situation is, but they see numbers and then they try and yeah. scramble to explain it. And then they want like heroes that will make Trump in America look bad. And for some reason, it's like <laughs> it's Korea and Singapore and Taiwan right now, and like, there's no actual explanation except like they show the chart and the numbers going down, and they're like, "Well, they must be doing something right," and then they just say like, "Oh, it must be these like horrible quarantines." I, I haven't seen anything about Singapore. I think it's because Taiwan and South Korea are basically like American colonies, and so there's this like very, you know, um, uh, they're already predisposed to like them if you're in America, right? They're ex- yeah, it's true, and they yeah. just did the big Oscars thing, <laughs> yep. K-pop, yeah, yeah. and all the cultural products that yeah. are flowing back yeah. this way. There's been a lot on uh, Singapore, but it's, half of it's like an asterisk that's like, but it's an authoritarian state. Right, right, right. Yeah. The first uh, thing that I wanted to talk about was this great article that you wrote, Andy, for M Plus One, um, and the title is that, you know, if you want to go read it, you can just find it. You can Google M Plus One, uh, Andrew Liu and Chinese virus, and it should come up. Uh, we can put a link to it in the show notes as well. But, uh, you know, uh, can you just tell me a little bit about like, or tell us a little bit about like how you thought about writing it or why you wrote this thing? Um, honestly, I was thinking, I was just kind of reading as much as possible, trying to rack my brain for what. Uh, how to frame this obviously huge story uh, since February or March or so, like before it actually was going to happen in America. And I, to be honest, I didn't think it was going to come to America and not nearly on this scale. Like, I don't think anyone did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it finally hit, this is all the week of Rudy Gobert. I think that's the milestone we're all going to use in the future. Um, I think we're all just kind yeah, of... that's when the NBA canceled its season. Yeah, it was on, the Wednesday. What was it? it was like March 10th. So it all kind of like happened super quickly. I just read as much as, as I could uh, possible. I think my, in terms of my specific take on how to think about the relationship of the coronavirus to China, right? This is, this is a bit of a polemic or kind of an oversimplification, but I would say my approach and my, the way I think about the world is that most people around the world, when they look at East Asia, Asia in general, they tend to think that whatever is going on today in the news is a result of something that happened 2,000 years ago. Uh, whereas in reality... What, what does that mean? What does that mean? So, you know, they think, like, it's because of the Confucianism. It's because about... It's because of... In Japan, it's because of Bushido or something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in Korea, there's the pop culture, like Han, right? The, yeah. Or yeah. face, right? Yeah. Han, Han explains everything right. in Korea. <laughs> right. 
And it's like one of these things, Tammy, please correct me if I'm wrong or if you disagree. It's like one of these things where it's like you kind of resist it because you're like everybody uses Han to explain everything. But then when you talk to your very Korean parents, they also explain right. everything <laughs> with Han. <laughs> so, like my aunt, who's a who's a nurse and, uh, you know, she's it's been her explanation for every single thing that's happened in my life, which she's very invested in for some reason. The, she's always like, yeah, our parents like, are the most orientalist generation because they, they all exactly. absorb this. Yeah. Um, so my theory is the whole world looks at Asia, including Asians, and think everything can be explained by something that happened two or 3,000 years ago. And everything actually can be explained by like everything after World War II, right? Sure. Where you had like these new states and these new governments, et cetera, et cetera. So... Uh, so there's all this like stuff, stuff laying around about pangolins and this wildlife market and how unhygienic mm-hmm. China is. So I kind of wanted to pick that apart. Um, I was thinking, I was actually, um, you know, a lot of this stuff I kind of feel guilty packaging as my own argument because obviously I'm just reading what other specialists have written about, but uh, came across something about how, um, you know, this pangolin, this wildlife market is obviously not for every single Chinese person. That's true. Like I have never thought about eating this in my life. None of my family has, as far as I know. Um, uh, and so if we break down, if we kind of break down and go beyond this obsession with like Chineseness or Asianness, and just kind of break it down, like let's think about class, let's think about geography, let's think about, um, like history as in, you know, the year 2020 is different than the year 2000, 1980, et cetera. Um, there's a lot of ways you could break it down such that this would not have happened necessarily. Um, and this would, this pandemic would not have happened even if, you know, Chinese people were eating pangolins in other situations. Um, so you can kind of shift the burden onto thinking about what is that, what is actually going on in terms of uh, you know, global capitalism, right? Or, or uh, the world market. And the way the argument has also kind of morphed, I wrote, um, you know, sort of a follow-up piece. The Guardian asked for some sort of shorter version um, this week. I was thinking about um, what does this say about, obviously, like the, the conversation that happens in the United States is, anti-Asian American, anti-Chinese American, anti-Chinese diaspora racism, right? And how do you account for that? Um, and I think a lot of it comes from, you know, the pandemic and both and the anti-Chinese backlash or the anti-Asian backlash kind of come from the same thing, which is that they're both would not have been possible without this sort of rise of China the last mm-hmm. 20, 30 years, right? Like the pandemic would not have happened if China was this sort of socialist um, sort of nationalized economy like it was in the 20th century. Yeah. And similarly, yeah. right. And similarly, I think the, the backlash might've happened in a different form, but the backlash, the, the form it's taken today is obviously an extension of fears of China taking, every, taking away everything, which was already happening before, you know, the calendar turned to 2020. Mm-hmm. Right. So I kind of think that it's, so I kind of think of these kind of two sides of the same coin. Well, okay. So two of the things that I wanted to sort of, bear, you know, like bear down on a little bit, which is that I think that one of the things that we could do and one thing that I thought your article did really well was sort of, you know, uh, clarify what what this wildlife market mm. is, you know, and, and I'm glad that you went into it because I think that we sometimes have a desire to push it away and not discuss it and just to say, oh, it's also stupid and nobody actually does that. And um and we shouldn't talk about it. And anyone who brings it up is a racist. You know, like that's sort of been the rote response, right. which I think is defensive for very good reasons. But um, from your article, it seems like 
the people who do eat this, which is a very small minority of this, that it's it's part of a traditional Chinese medicine diet. Is that right? And that the pangolin scales are what's eaten. Like a pangolin kind of looks like an ant eater with a lot of thick scales, and it's eaten for like what what is it eaten for? And so like there is a sort of traditional notion that um, it's good for I think the kidney, good for.、Mm-hmm. But ultimately, all this stuff is really about men's sexual performance and women's beauty. Like,、mm-hmm. Let's be honest.、Um, and so that's the superficial advertisement, right? <clears throat> But the, I think what I was kind of looking for、um, are indications that this is really that that might have been there all along. But the sort of the X factor in the last twenty, thirty years is obviously Chinese people, Chinese businessmen and women, but mostly men.、Uh, the sort of、uh, they're getting rich. And pangolins are sort of this form of conspicuous consumption,、mm-hmm. and so the best comparison I could think of, let's say, is foie gras, right? Or、uh, I don't know if you've ever seen、um, Succession or Billions. They talk about they they both have this scene where you eat this,、uh, I think, French bird called the ortolan, which、uh, if you look it up, it's、hmm. it's controversial. Let just like a pangolin is controversial, because、mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think these birds are somewhat extinct or endangered. But they're also like killed in a cruel way, and it's like a thing that like the French kings would used to eat, and the aristocrats would used to eat.、Um, and so, you know, both these TV shows are saying like, when you get really rich, you can eat ortolan, you can eat like birds whole or or foie gras, right, or something like that. Yeah. So it's kind of silly. It's, it would be like saying,、um, you know, if if foie gras like caused the next pandemic, would you blame all white people, right? Yeah. For that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.、Uh, but is it is it sort of is it wealthy people who are eating? That's my that's my sense, and you know, having read. You know, a lot of this stuff is like it's sort of it's all like black market stuff. There isn't like very clear data. Anecdotally, I would read、um, these studies that say people do it、um, basically as cons- again conspicuous consumption.、Mm-hmm. The more expensive it gets, that's what makes it、uh, appealing, right? So you would do it at a very fancy dinner to like close a deal with a business partner or to show off to the local mayor or whatever.、Um, I don't know if it's supposed to taste good. I don't. I think it's all supposed to be you know just. The whole purpose is to show off, and and I always kind of feel like traditional Chinese medicine. I don't know if there's an equivalent in、um, in, in 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 Korean life, but、uh, it's it's sort of I don't I don't know how many people how many young people really believe it. I think a lot of it is just sort of it's there, and you get to you 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 choose you choose to do it、um, not because of some like true superstition, but maybe out of just some sort of like habit. I I I wanted like the. So the the transition of that was interesting to me in your article, and I want to I want to read part of it back to you, which is this question that you pose in it, which is, was the、uh, consumption of pangolin a residue of unchanging primitive Chinese custom? Could it be blamed on local co- culture? In quotes, as the SARS virus was blamed on the exotic and peculiar taste so dominant in Cantonese cuisine. If so, would we have to concede that the novel coronavirus is indeed a particularly Chinese disease? So,、uh, what was your answer to that? Because that was that was a that was a question that you posed that really st- stuck out to me. Yeah, I mean, like, kind of like you were saying, you don't want to wind up saying like you don't want to go in this opposite direction of saying like there's nothing different about people, right? And、yeah. like we're all the same, and therefore pointing out the fact that there's some wildlife consumption in China is racist in itself, right? I would say, like all these different、uh, parts of the world, they have their own particular practices、um, rooted in some sort of history. But what made, I guess, the comparison, the 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 test case that I that I kind of looked up was in 1957. There was kind of a similar outbreak called the 1957 Asian flu, and that takes you know six eight months to go around the world. 
Whereas today, and that's from kind of the where you kind of expect Hong Kong, Singapore, right? Yeah. The sort of coastal, rich parts of that part of the world. Uh, what I was trying to argue in the article is the city of Wuhan is kind of known, well known among Chinese people, but not it's not an international city. Mm-hmm. It has become recently. Uh, like I just discovered reading, writing this article that like Serbian automobile factories get their parts from Wuhan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Hyundai does, right? Uh, so there's these international supply chains that were not surprising when I learned about them, but I didn't know about them. They're these sort of invisible ones that we all don't know about yeah. that have been created in the last 20 years. Yeah. And I would say that would, uh, that the, the pandemic owes as much to those. Um, the speed of the pandemic, the scale, the scope of the pandemic owes as much to those as it does to this peculiar Chinese habit. Because again, if this, if on the terms of that, of, let's say the, the culturalists, on the terms of the culturalists uh, argument, this is something that Chinese people have wanted to eat for thousands of years, yeah. right? Then why hasn't this pandemic Right. You know, why Why didn't it happen every single year up until this year, you know? There's the other, the, the sort of, what makes this pandemic kind of specific to the 21st century is the fact that Wuhan, of all places, is eating pangolin, which is kind of rare, right? Pangolin, as I also argue, and wildlife is kind of this thing that's part part of certain parts of China, but Wuhan doesn't really strike me as a exotic cuisine. Uh, the, the analogy has always been it's like Chicago. Yeah. Right? They eat well, like, what does that mean? Second it's like city. Chicago. Second city, industrial city, inland city, connected by the river, but not not connected to the world by the ocean. Mm-hmm. The if you ask the local Wuhan people what the best food is, it's this breakfast dish, which is just peanut noodles. Obviously, for like students and workers, right? It's not there's like uh, Chicago pizza or like Chicago yeah. hot dogs, right? It's not <laughs> foie gras, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and then and like so, how how did this spread? Because you like. Uh, Part of what you detailed was, you know, and which I found to be massively helpful in my understanding of this was, you know, how this, who were the people who went out to different parts of the world uh, to, to, to spread, you know, the coronavirus. And, you know, like, I, I, and I, I think about this a lot because, you know, like, uh, in Mexico City, for example, their outbreak was caused by uh, rich Mexico City fresas who were going to Telluride to ski and then got... <laughs> coronavirus in Telluride, which had this massive outbreak for reasons that are very obvious because, you know, the skiing towns across the world all got it because you have tons of people coming from all over the place. They're all huddled inside in the, I forget what they're called, like the ski bunny lodges, which, uh, you know, like the the wood things where you have a beer. And and then, and, uh, and then they get back on planes and then they go back home. Um, And, you know, they think that in Germany as well. That's where it was. It was people who mm-hmm. were skiing in the Alps and in 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 Wuhan. Like, where? Wh- how did this get out? Yeah, I think just you know, tracing the a- individual anecdotes. Wikipedia actually has a very good list of these. <laughs> uh, they were just it struck me as just like very unsurprising. Like, mm-hmm. oh, this person is from like another part of China, has relatives in Wuhan, but also works in Seoul or works in Tokyo somewhere, or they went on a tourist trip to you know, Bangkok, Thailand. Uh, these are things that you completely expect in 21st century Asia, where you have, you know, flights connecting not just like Tokyo, Beijing, and Seoul, but like second, third tier cities. They're all yeah. interconnected in a way that they haven't been probably ever before. Um, so that's how it kind of gradually spread. The New York Times had that kind of cool animation. I don't know if you guys saw that article yeah. where, mm-hmm. I don't, uh, is that Adobe or whatever, the, the um, flash they showed how they were, they were moving into like Bangkok, 
mostly in a Bangkok because this is during Chinese New Year's, which is winter. Yeah. It's cold. Bangkok is like the close by hot vacation spot. Uh, so there's just like the the contours that they moved along were just normal people with extended family or jobs in nearby Asian countries. Seattle, I think, is kind of honestly like an you know it's a, it's a kind of extension of a lot of the diaspora. Yeah. Um, the wet the West Coast, right? Um, and then there's like tourism, right? Uh, Chinese people are the China you know China constitutes the number one tourist market in the world or the Chinese tourists are the, are the biggest market in the world which obviously makes a lot of sense right they're the biggest country too um, so if, it, if it's if there's a holiday season you can just bet there's going to be a lot of people leaving China not just for one or two countries but you know all over Asia United States Europe so yeah the, I saw that with Italy yeah. where uh, I was doing some research on you know I, I don't know why but you know part of my like 3 a.m. just read the internet type of stuff and you know, I saw that in Italy, they have been trying for the last five years to make this huge partnership with China to bring in tourists. And, mm. um, you know, uh, the people who went to northern Italy worked in the textile factories, but they also think that tons of tourists came through and that this was going to be like the 50th year of cooperation between or like friendship between uh, China and Italy and that that was going to bring a ton of tourists over. And, you know, the only reason I was thinking about this was just like I was trying to figure out how bad the backlash was going to be in Italy and like, you know, like and what yeah. was good. And then I was like, and also how much of Italy's economy was contingent on Chinese, their relationship with China, you know, because Italy, 12 percent of their GDP is from tourism. You know, a large percent of their GDP is from luxury good manufacturing and the yeah. biggest consumer for both of those is China. And so, like, right. you know, like, what do you do at that point? Um right. Tammy, like in Korea, well, like what's the what's the attitude about um, about China right now and about like people coming in from China? Is there is there the same sort of nativist backlash that we've seen here? Yeah, my sense is that that was definitely the case, and students were sort of freaked out. Like there were definitely a lot of sort of Chinese Koreans or Chinese students studying abroad in Korea who were very nervous about. What was happening? There was a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment, and the term also Chinese virus was getting used in Korea a lot. But then I think would they, would they say would they say Chinese virus in English or were they? Were they, using <laughs> the, <laughs> they I the think Korean they used the term Wuhan virus. Okay. Um, they, initially, yeah. So you know, it's what is it? What is it? What is it now? I think now they mostly call it um, Corona nineteen. Corona yugu is right, right. the dominant term. Oh. So I think it's shifted a little bit, and I think like the explosion of the Korean cult, you know, of the disease within the Korean cult was such it's that... Shincheonji, is that what it's Shincheonji, called? Shincheonji, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, means, like, new world, new heaven, right? Meant, mm. meant that, basically, they could no longer blame it on the Chinese. Yeah, they found <laughs> right. a much better scapegoat. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> right. Now they have the other. Are they sort of like, you know, Om Shin Rikyo in, in Japan in the 90s, the one that... Um, I think they're, like, less freaky. It's yeah. basically, like... Just an offshoot of like mainline Christianity, which was part yeah. of the reason yeah. why people were so defensive about it. It's um, sort of like Amer intense American evangelicism, as far as I can tell, imported, you know, sort of radiating back from intense evangelicals in Southern mm -hmm. California who are Korean, and then <laughs> uh, and then 
some of those practices going back, but I'm not sure. I mean, Tammy, like, is, does that seem like a I, bad characterization? Or? No, I mean, I think there are definitely parallels, but to me it seems like more of just like a weird offshoot of the Korean megachurches, mm-hmm. like Sarangegyoe in Seoul, right, which has like tens of thousands of worshipers every Sunday, and some of these other megachurches that, that have also had problems shutting down their, um, or refused to shut down their services and are still kind of spreaders. But it was most intense in this Shincheonji cult, I think, because of their very intimate practices. And there were like a couple super spreading events, like the funeral of a relative of the founder of it. There was also like a Wuhan connection, I think, where there's a branch of the church there. Uh, so, yeah, I hmm. which was interesting. Also, like I really thought in Andy's article, so like the juxtaposition of like how mundane all of this like business transit is. And, like, you know, against, like, this pangolin, which is both, like, mundane and extraordinary as something that you consume. Um, And, Jay, to your point about, like, the tourists, there was this weird Korean episode. I don't know if you guys follow this thing in Israel where these Koreans were essentially, like, stuck on a bus. Because at some point (laughs) there was a policy in Israel where, you know, they had this idea that the virus had spread from China to Korea. And now all of East Asia was infected. And so they wouldn't take Koreans into their hotels. But because Koreans are so fucking crazy about Jesus, they're, like, one of the main tourist groups to Israel. So it was this question of, like, what are they going to do losing all this money? But they just had these Korean tourists on buses, like, <laughs> I know, I saw, buses. like, it seemed like the buses, like, couldn't stop. And yeah. so the buses are driving through the night, and they're, all the yeah. women and men who are on the bus were, like, uh recording videos of themselves like singing and dancing and they're like exactly. you can't feed our, defeat our spirit and we're like no i mean this is pretty bad <laughs> this is pretty yeah. bad i'm glad that you have a good attitude about it though uh, what, what is the uh what is the chinese korean connection economically is it just like supply chains of industry or it's not tourism necessarily is it definitely tourism yeah oh, it is. but yeah the business sponsor i mean i don't have the stats in front of me but it's like it's very intimately linked. And as you mentioned with the supply chains, but I think that goes both ways, you know, and then the tourism for sure. So, I mean, but, what's interesting in the Korean case too, is that there was already so much tension with Japan and you guys probably remember like the boycotts from last year and stuff. So yeah. there was already this sense of like, you know, of like a very like sort of nationalistic and kind of like, um, just very like xenophobic sentiment mm-hmm. for some legitimate and some illegitimate reasons in Korea. Was it all over Korea, or was it kind of focused on a couple cities, the uh, the virus? Oh, the virus was concentrated in a conservative southern city called Daegu. Oh, which, so not Seoul? No, not Seoul, although oh, it's wow. grown in Seoul, yeah. but uh, So that was interesting, too, because that's kind of like the enemy city of the current administration. <laughs> so it became a kind of politicized thing about who's doing this better, the Daegu government or the central government. Yeah. I want to get back to this like idea of this sort of mundane travel because first of all I think it's a very nice way to describe it. What has happened now that China is China of that we know today and not China of like 50 years ago is that there are many more of these sorts of many more types of ways in which people leave the country to travel to other places, and that uh, it's very hard to try and crack down all of them. Like there's no like you know we talk about test and trace all the time. Like when there's so many avenues out, it's really difficult to do. So like, like what, what are some other ways in which like people were leaving and going to other places during that period? Well, the interesting ones, the final, the other ones I, I, I didn't get to mention just now was that the one, it was, was strictly like the supply chains or direct uh, business relationships. So the one in Iran was 
Complete. Well, again, it's like it's not surprising to me because you hear all these stories about China is investing in the sort of post-colonial global South world, uh, yeah. primarily South Asia or Middle East, Africa. I didn't know the connections to Iran, but when I started reading about them, they made a lot of sense. There's a town called, uh, I think it's like pronounced Qom, Q-O-M, where it first broke out. And there's only 100,000 people there, right? So it's not a big city. But that's where it first broke out uh, because for whatever reason, there's a lot of Chinese infrastructural investment there. So there's engineers there, there's business people there, and then there's Iranians who would go to China and back. Um, And that's also kind of, that's geopolitics, right? Because Iran obviously doesn't have relationships with the United States and the NATO countries, right? So they turn to China as their source of foreign aid and investment, right? Um, But even a more sort of predictable route I mentioned earlier was apparently like if you're a major automobile company around the world, uh, Renault, uh, uh, one of these German companies in Munich, and then Hyundai, like I mentioned, right? Any automobile company gets their parts, apparently, from Wuhan. So that was one one route. Um, but more generally, I think that the thing that people weren't getting really with, well, I think the foreign media kind of describes China in this contradictory way. On the one hand, it's like barbaric and behind, and like, well, like, oh, wildlife, they, they don't respect animals. On the other hand, um, what they don't see is like, uh, they're also very... The Chinese economy, a lot of these middle class to business class people, they're traveling all around the world, um, across Asia in a way that has never been possible, right? Because of sort of the the uh, you know liberalization of political borders, airplane travel, basically now these cruises, right? So there's like Asia is way more dynamic, I think, than people have have recognized, right? They just kind of hear the headlines, perhaps. But they don't real, realize that, you know, these people in Wuhan can take a bullet train to Shenzhen to Hong Kong, and then from Hong Kong get on a ferry cruise that goes all the way to Tokyo or whatever, a cruise ship that goes to Tokyo, right? And it's like, these are all very, these are also forms of transportation that are way better than anything in the United States, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I, I, I guess as a thought experiment, after reading a piece, I was trying to think about if this had happened in Korea, right? Which, you know, it certainly could have, and... You know, uh, there's certain things that Koreans eat that would be sort of, you know, I mean, you know, like would be castigated in the same way by a Western audience, I think, and, you know, be sort of like otherwise and like what? vilified in the same way. Like where would be the places that we would have breakouts, you know? And, you know, obviously it, Los Angeles is one of them, you know, like that's obvious. New York would be one of them. But like... You know, like there, uh, I think Milan would certainly be one of them because there's a lot of Korean students there. But like, you can't really stop the list at any point, you know. And the one place where I thought about where I once had like an amazingly good Korean meal was like Birmingham, Alabama, for example, you know. And the reason they have like these great Korean, I'm sorry, Montgomery, Alabama, and they have these amazing Korean restaurants in Montgomery, Alabama. And the reason they have that is because there's like a Hyundai, like, manufacturing plant there, you know? And so mm-hmm. I was thinking about it, I was like, mm-hmm. well, there would be a breakout in Montgomery, Alabama, and no one would understand it, you know? But then if you think about it, it's like there's no end to the number of places that that could be because there's really no end to the places where, you know, like some sort of Korean business is not going on. Um, and that, that I thought that your article clarified that really Yeah, and the, really other, the other thing well. that might be, I was kind of thinking about this with that newfound discovery that the New York coronavirus probably came from Europe. 
Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That Trump currently has tweeted three yeah. times about and deleted his tweets. Oh, it's really, really weird. What I don't he, know what, what he's saying. Oh wow, did not. It, know well, that. He's saying like that the New York Times is lying about it and that. Um, and, oh my God. and then he deleted it and then he retweeted it and then he deleted it and then he retweeted it again. And I, like I, in my head, I was like, what's going on? It's like G calling him and be like, you have to delete that tweet. But, he's like, okay, okay, okay. He's like, no, 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 fuck this. I don't, I'm, gonna, he, I'm just going to tweet it again. He, he, he himself banned Europe though. So I thought, why, why wouldn't he claim a victory yeah. for that? I think, right. I think that he is trying to get as much credit as possible for like the one thing that he did do that he can China. point to saying that he did early was to ban travel from right, China, right, right. you know, yeah. and he has to play defense on. Yeah. That. Or even I think, I mean, I don't want to make this a Donald Trump problem, right? But yeah, uh, his strategy changes every day. So he doesn't actually think, remember what he did last week. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah but, I think that's part of it too. But thinking about like, it's not even about like, we can obviously make the claim that, or the observation that China has X, Y, Z more people than Korea or any of these other countries. But yeah. once it gets out, it gets out, and it's really not a question of like how big China is, right? Yeah. That's kind of irrelevant, right? You just need like one route because yeah. it really didn't travel through the northern half. It's really like Wuhan to maybe Shanghai or the southern route, and then you know it's out. So if it started in South Korea, it would just have to go from mm. South Korea to, you know, um, to Japan once or to LA once, right? Um, yeah. yeah, or to like Anchor Wat or something like yeah. that. You know, it could be like any of these places that people travel to um yeah. so that are like yeah. hot spots for koreans which include yeah. tammy have you been to, have you been to anchor wat no they have like a, in cm reap they have like a huge korea town and oh, wow. uh it's because korean for middle class koreans going to cambodia is like a cheap holiday and mm-hmm. so they have all these bars and like norebangs and everything and the cambodian tour guides like do not like Koreans, and so like it was like one, <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, it's like one of these things where plus all the sweatshops they run there. <laughs> yeah, it's like one of these things where the yeah. tour guy was so nice to my wife and like so hostile to me, and I was like, listen, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> they also they also they also have huge investments in Bangladesh, right? For the textile factories yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, totally. In yeah. Vietnam. So these like yeah. trans Asian third world post colonial totally. connections again, I think are. Things that if you pay attention to the news or like, you know, like uh, people like us would not be surprised by, but the rest of the world just kind of thinks like there's Asia and then there's the West and that's it. Right. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And also what you're saying kind of makes me think about how people in the West don't really imagine like Asians traveling. Like they imagine their products traveling and they're used to that currency, but they don't like, oh, Chinese businessmen are going to Munich. Right. (laughs) Unless they're like on a ship and they're (laughs) slaves and. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So, like today, you know, Bill Maher got a bunch of attention for doing a video, which looked like it was shot in his backyard or something like that. I guess is what everyone's doing. But uh, he said, you know, he, he repeated. I'm, we don't have to talk about any of this stuff about what he, he decided to say was, uh, you know, why we should call it the Chinese virus. But the thing that he did fixate on is something that I think is happening within the media right now. And is a real question that people have, which is like, why China does not shut down the wet markets, right? And uh, a lot of this is actually from um, Dr. Fauci, who is now like America's hero. And he, (laughs) many years ago, said, I wish that they would shut down the wet markets. And then last week, I think he was asked about it. And he said, it's stunning to me that they haven't shut down the wet markets. And so 
The wet markets, I think, is one of these things where people have, uh, first of all, it's like a disgusting phrase, and so it sounds disgusting. Yeah. But it's like, like nobody wants to go to a fucking wet market, you know? So, like, it, it's, it's effective in that sort of way. Like, I feel like if it had a different name, that it would be such a bad idea. It wouldn't be, like, so gross. But everyone's like, what's a wet market? Um, so that, that was something that I wanted to ask you, Annie, which is, like, like what, what actually is a wet market? Because I, I actually don't know. Yeah, so I, I've been pushing my friend to write about this, so I don't want to steal her thunder because she was uh, writing kind of you know social media posts about this. Uh, I think the idea of the wet market, this whole phenomenon, is like this uh, you know like 300-page cultural studies book to be written about. Uh, <laughs> as far as I can tell from Wikipedia, it's a product of what is called Hong Kong English, which is another word for like colonial English, uh, what, what the British people in Hong Kong would use to refer to the Asian people living among them, right? Um, which isn't, you know, necessarily like bad in of itself, but you can kind of get a sense of the kind of person who came up with the term wet market and what they were looking at at the time. They're probably uh, unaccustomed to it, uh, you know, back in, back in Europe and they go to Asia and they see, you know, the definition is like so generic and so bland and I'm sure all of us, uh, you know, much in the, in the United States, much less in Asia, right? You see things that qualify as wet markets, right? Like in Philly, I go to these, in Philly, I go to these grocery stores, Asian grocery stores, and they're just like live fish. Like that's a wet market by this definition, right? Oh, so it, it's anything that 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 is just an outdoor market. So like a farmer's market might qualify. Does yeah. it have to have like meat in it or anything like that? I think that? maybe or, meat. Or I think a certain wetness to Yeah, to I mean, it, I, like I, I think that is the, I think, well, the defin definition is slippery, right? Because it was just kind of made up. Um, I think... Yeah. What people mean when they talk about wet market, what they really might mean is something to do with meat and storing live animals um, and wildlife. Yeah, is it like slaughtering on the spot? Is that yeah. Because traditional market is also used, and I never hear like wet market in other in countries. Taiwan, it seems to always be a Chinese Yeah, in Taiwan thing. we just call it traditional market, which of course, like, like, like yeah. wet market, like these are both obviously modern terms. Because people right. a thousand yeah. years ago didn't say, I'm going to go to the traditional market. Yeah, <laughs> 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 exactly. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Obviously, all these categories only make sense if you think the world should just be a bunch of Whole Foods, right? Yeah. Supermarkets. <laughs> yeah. And everyone has, you know, a kitchen refrigerator and a basement refrigerator to keep all their food for three months, like like all of us are doing now. But for most of the world and most of history, people just kind of, if they're lucky, right, if they're lucky to live by a market, they could just they would yeah. have to walk down the street and get that that night's ingredients on the spot. Because um, they don't have a place to keep it anyway. But those are super popular in like Mexico, Italy, Greece. Right. Like they're exactly right. the same. So uh, I, I do. I mean, the standards are varied, of course. Like in, and uh, when I've been in mainland China, I've been in places where like, oh, this is this is qualitatively different than being in yeah. Taiwan, where um, it's a little bit more kind of what's the word like Americanized, let's say, uh, where you really do kind of like smell a lot of blood. And you do see oh, in, in gotcha. the Chinese, and the, the 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 issue that they have with it right now is that um, that it is uh, that there is a store way that they are storing some of these wild animal trade items that leads to an increase in zoonotic transfer. Is that right? Right, just like that they are. You know, the, the descriptions. I think that the right wing commentators are saying. They're basically saying like there's like dead animal carcasses lying next to each other, and the blood is mm. just like gross and rotting, and there's flies everywhere. Um, uh, and again, I think there's a lot of things being mixed up together. I think what they're really criticizing is wildlife, 
on this assumption that, yeah. uh, which also, again, this raises the question of, I think the question I, I, that I kind of think about is all these people are criticizing, let's say they're Americans or Western Europeans, criticizing these wet markets. Where do they think their animal meat comes from? Like, do they not think it gets yeah. slaughtered somewhere? And do they think that when it gets slaughtered and cut up, that is completely sanitary and not at all a problem, right? Like, if you look up, uh, the one, the counterexample would be like the H1N1 so-called swine flu of 2009 came from a factory mm -hmm. farm in Mexico owned by an American corporation, right? Like, this factory farming has its own host of problems. So if farming, so wildlife, if wildlife is a problem, but farming is, you know, industrial factory farming is also the problem. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, I think, environmentalist types who are whose whole reaction is let's just stop eating meat which is i'm 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 fine with that <laughs> like as a or i'm fair <laughs> with that criticism as opposed to the sort of cherry picking you know and, and sort of in my opinion like very weird a historical idea of how people get food right yeah well because like to be clear china did come out and ban the wildlife trade right like the wildlife so it's, uh, so this trade. is controversial it's been banned since the 1980s or regulated mm -hmm. let's say but the controversy is that since the 1980s this quote-unquote regulation really means the government itself has actually wound up in the business of raising and selling wildlife which you could say is actually perhaps an improvement because then it's quote-unquote farmed yeah. and under its own under its own uh you know uh umbrella of uh, of regulation but the reason they do it is per, because the government is perhaps, you know, buddy buddy with the elites, who want to keep this wildlife thing open. Um, pangolin is different just because it can't be farmed in China. It's actually ex more or less extinct in China. Uh, the thing I read uh, speculated that this pangolin in question, this mythological pangolin that started all this, was from Malaysia. So it's an international thing. Just to close out your piece, Andy, I, I wanted to write. You know, you you did say at the beginning that it was a polemic, and I wanted you to be able to talk about the polemic part of it. So I'm going to read part of it back to you, which I, you know, I think is a very clear, clear way that you put it, which is common to all these responses was an underlying American belief that the coronavirus was a distinctly Chinese problem. Virus epidemics, city closures, those are things that happen out there, in quotes, in the poor and non-white countries, but certainly never over here. Now, now such myopic East-West thinking has proven self-sabotaging as a U.S. government has revealed itself as extraordinarily unprepared for the outbreak and as so many American citizens have proven to be socially irresponsible to a staggering degree, attempting to price gouge for hand sanitizer and packing restaurants and bars long after the numbers have begun ascending the same steep path as Italy and Iran before them. Viruses transcend borders. They make a mockery out of politi uh, powerful politicians and nationalistic hubris. Um, yeah, like, do, you, do you think that this has been sort of a reckoning for the West, you know, in terms of, of trying to figure out, like, well, we're not immune to it. Like, uh, you know, do you think that this has damaged American exceptionalism? I think it should, obviously, but I don't think it has yet. I think people are mostly very defensive. Um... So, like I said, I mentioned earlier, I wrote a sort of a short version of this. Um, and I also, uh, later this last week, and I kind of fleshed out that argument more um, after conversations with my friend, his name is Toby Dachau, he's an organizer in Chicago, who was pointing out, and I think we kind of all agree upon this, like this kind of gets us into perhaps discussion of like Andrew Yang later, this question of like, how do you address racism? You can't really moralize your way out of racism. Like, like you could shame people for being racist, but people don't who are racist probably don't see the point of that um yeah. uh, i think an effective 
argument in this particular case is to suggest that not to like debate whether or not it was China's fault or not, but rather like the very fact that so many parts of the world did not think it could happen to them directly led to so many you know unnecessary deaths. Um, so the examples yeah. I came up that came to that I've come across one was this article about Italy where this um, official who I don't want to like I'm not trying to attack her because I think she's very being being very honest saying we just thought it was like a science fiction movie and it was not going to happen here. Um, uh, someone I do perhaps want to attack is this Kansas politician who said uh, we don't need to prepare for the coronavirus because we have no Chinese people in our town. So whether or not you feel like your society is exceptional, right? We have evidence that that particular attitude um, kind of, you know, just kind of like fell flat on its face this time and, and has sort of undeniably dire consequences, right? T- Tammy, what do you think? Because I think that this like sort of gets at an article that you wrote for the Times. Uh, you wrote about masks, right? And why people in the West are, are not just, in, not the entire West, because I think that Czech Republic has done, has adopted it, but um, more a lot of the West, and especially here in America, we're so slow to adopt this mask wearing um, custom. And I think in the article, you 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 do do a lot of reporting. You talk about a pharmacist in near Incheon Airport who is uh, you know, and and her efforts to keep her mask supply stocked. But you end with this note, which I wanted to read because I, I you know I think it goes along the same lines of what Andy was talking about, which is. To survive this pandemic, we Americans must stop viewing masks as a sign of disease and see them instead as a social kindness, a courtesy as common as please and thank you. As Chad Kweok, a pharmacist in northern Seoul, told me, Koreans wear masks to protect themselves from infections, but even more important, to show consideration for others in public. Uh, Kuk sung Yeon, the president of Pharmacists Association in Kim Chun near South Korea's COVID-19 hotspot, told me, it's been terrible to see what's happening in Europe and America. I really hope that in the West, people develop a culture of mask wearing. A mask is not just for sick patients. Do you, like, how much of, do you think of the resistance to wear masks here in the United States came from a sort of sense that that is not for Western people, that is, that is like an Asian thing? Yeah, I've been really surprised about the reception to the idea of masks and how it's kind of evolved over the past few weeks. The same day that this article came out, Ed Yong had a piece in The Atlantic that was basically going through like the science on masks. And obviously I'm not a scientist, you guys aren't either, but I just found, I find this discussion around like are masks worthwhile, like so weird because we're totally obsessed with healthcare workers having them. But for normal people, there's just a sense of like, ah, this doesn't matter at all. And I was wearing one that I sewed myself the other day on the street. And this guy just screamed at me across the street, like, the cloth ones don't even work. You know, and I'm like, everyone's a fucking mask expert now. I, I thought you were going to say he was going to be racist towards you. I was like, dude. Said. I thought he, I was kind of bracing myself because I yeah. saw his lips open. You need an and then like, a fucking cloth mask. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, do you have one? I don't know. That'd be amazing um, if all the racism yeah, was replaced it's... by mask shaving. <laughs> it would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I felt really like belittled. Um, yeah, I don't, I think it, there's definitely a kind of resistance to whatever Asian wisdom is or, you know, this sort of um, maybe this, this thought that yeah, Asians do that all the time, but that's just not for us. Um, that's not something that we're used to, which is true. I mean, we're not used to it. We're not, we don't do it the way that Asians do it on days where there's a ton of pollution or during cold season where it's super common to see like 50% of the people on a train wearing a mask. 
Um, but yeah, I think there's, despite the government in action, the lack of tests, like all this stuff that would just make it so much more the case that we should try to be protecting ourselves. There's just been a real just unwillingness to adopt this practice. And I think it's just a symbol of a broader thing, which is a kind of unwillingness to learn from other people. And um, I had done an interview with a guy who was leading the effort in Tegu. And after it published, like a bunch of doctors reached out and were just like, could I get his contact information? Like, we want to learn more about what's happening. And like, that was exciting to me. But basically what that was also indicating was like none of their institutions had any practice or system around this. They wanted to like pick it up. Jay, I think you tweeted like um, this thing that was floating around, which was basically like a community crowdsourced effort to translate the Korean CDC's response guidelines, right? Which has been then floating around and I sent to some doctor friends and, um, you know, I've been really trying, puzzling over this, like, yes, in January and February, all of us should have been much more aware that this was coming, but certainly if you're a physician and you were already tracking this and nervous about it, why wouldn't you have reached out and tried to learn more about the different Asian countries' responses? Why is there even now very little, like, sort of cross-pollination? Like even in, I think some of it maybe is just like a linguistic barrier and kind of a laziness on American reporters and experts part. But yeah, to me, I guess the mask thing is, is symptomatic of a larger Yeah, it seems oh, not just symptomatic, but like emblematic to me, which is like you have these yeah. countries that yeah. dealt with SARS-1, you know, that deal with like intense totally. flu season, cold fever seasons that have the types of conditions that places like New York have, but even more amplified, you know, more crowded, more, more mm -hmm. dense. And, uh, you know, like the question of like, well, why do these, why do they wear masks? You know, the answer is always just going to be, well, I don't know, you know, but it, it, it can't apply to mm -hmm. us. And it, it's like, like at the beginning, there was like this, there was this rumor that it only affected Asian lungs or something like that. Do you remember that? That, that it was... <laughs> Uh, Bill Mitchell that. tweeted it out, which, uh, you know, is, uh, Bill Mitchell has been an amazing, content, amazing. Um, uh, provider throughout this whole thing. But he was like, <laughs> it seems like it only affects Asian lungs. And I was like, all right, like, you know, maybe, I don't know. Is there such thing as an Asian yeah, no. lung? <laughs> but but, uh, but I think that that is the actual attitude about mass that made it so difficult. But then, you know, I think that's part of it. But then I also, th and this is something I want to ask you about, like how much of it was that? Like how much of it was like, we don't do those types of things here. And how much was it like literally the CDC and, and you know, almost every single doctor and, yeah. uh, you know, this is well-documented, like tons of media outlets that I don't want to shame and call out because they all did it. And also, honestly, if I was writing about it for some reason, I probably would have yeah. also said the same okay. thing, which is like, don't do this. Right. You know, it doesn't help. Like, uh, like yeah. what, what do you think the ratio is there? Like, how much of it was, do you think that if the CDC had come out and said everyone should wear a mask, that there would have been widespread mask adoption? There's no production, though. I, yeah, I don't true. know. Yeah. I mean, what I was going to, what I w have been thinking a lot about is this kind of parallel between the mask issue and like our obsession with like the surveillance, the yeah. epidemiological surveillance and how basically both of them are anxieties <laughs> that exist because that exist, but actually aren't that important in the sense that we don't have like what the preconditions for those things are like in the surveillance case. The only reason like Asian countries have been doing that app-based patient surveillance is because they have a shit mm -hmm. ton of testing so they can test and then track patients and they can say, 
okay, if you were at like this whole market five minutes ago, there was a patient there. So like you should be careful and then maybe be tested or stay inside or whatever. But in America, we don't have tests. And so we're not going to have the kind of epidemiological surveillance yet that those countries have. The mask thing too, it was like, People were so anxious and resistant to the idea of wearing masks. And I was like, is this also, is this because we don't have masks? Is it because like we're trying to convince ourselves that we don't need them because we know we can't get them? It's, it has it's been going. interesting that the shift in the last two weeks you were talking about, Tammy, like I'm sure we all saw that viral video in, in, in Philadelphia that came out yesterday of like 10 cops pulling a guy off of the SEPTA bus because he yeah. wasn't wearing a mask. And um, I'm in the Bay Area right now, and I would say when I went to the uh, Korean grocery store in Oakland the other day, it was like 95% of the people wearing masks, you know, and then I went to a mm. bougie-ass Safeway because the Korean grocery store is actually really bad. Here. I, you know, I don't want to slander them, but it's not good. And so I had to pick up other things in the, in the, in the bougie Safeway. And then, you needed yeast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, actually, sourdough starter does not need yeast. It's the whole point of it. But uh, I... <laughs> I went to the boot and in the safe way it was a hundred percent, you know, and, um, and that was really surprising to me and my friends who, uh, my friend went to Berkeley bowl yeah, today surprised. and he said it was a hundred percent, very close to a hundred percent at Berkeley that, bowl as well. That's a class, which, uh, that's awesome class thing. Like, well, Berkeley bowl is actually yeah, quite, the New York times there, don't they? Well, the Berkeley bowl, I think is very, <laughs> okay. It's very mixed, it's very but also mixed, it's so. still in Berkeley, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it's a mix, but it is like a, it's like a, it's up, it's yeah. ratcheted up a little bit right. because Berkeley is so expensive yeah. to live in. But, um, I don't know why, why do you think that shift has happened? Yeah, I mean, like why, why, why did we go from like, nobody should ever wear masks to somebody screaming at you that your mask sucks on the street, on the street? Yeah, right. I, I mean, my personal view is that it's because I think we've been paying more attention to the Asian response in light of our government's failure, you know? I mean, and I think this idea of, like, what does a mask represent is starting to change. Like, even in late February, I was in uh, Washington where my parents live and where I grew up, and my mom is in nursing home regulation there. And so I had just gone home to see them and to spend some time, and this shit just blew up in a couple of the nursing homes that you guys probably read about in Kirkland, Washington. And, you know, and so she was just, they were all freaking out, but everyone in the agency... They actually were kind of discouraging even agency workers and inspectors initially from wearing masks because they were afraid that yeah. it would transmit panic and that it would like transmit like this idea that they too could be carriers or that, you know, we were all very much in trouble. And it's like we actually were, of course, very much in trouble. Um, and now everyone, you know, and then like a couple of days later, basically everyone was fitted. Well, for I mean, 95. your article is saying that so this happens really kind of fast. spinning it by saying it by wearing masks. It's not so much transmitting panic, but transmitting collective responsibility yeah uh right and that's maybe part of the reason that you know in america too we've been like oh we couldn't do that because we're just not like a confucian collectivist culture and we don't give a shit about each other all this stuff and you know i mean that is a challenge i think in the social distancing practice but now Uh, i think people are behaving themselves i was telling jay last week i think the global approval rating of korea and taiwan right now are at a all-time high (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My cousin was telling me that there are, uh, she saw, look, I don't know if this is true or not, but she saw on Facebook that there, 
t-shirts now that are saying i'm not chinese i'm korean <laughs> and you know i think that first oh of all God. if somebody wears that and i i will i will hate crime them not physically person. but i will say something sure. very racist to them but uh but that that was like that was you know it, it is strange how i i have found the response to korea to be really fascinating and you know, in many ways, but like sort of the people who are the most appreciative of it, I think, are like sort of technocrat mm. people, you know, like Silicon Valley types, mm. like libertarians, like everything like that. And, you know, you can tell how deep their libertarianism goes because they're essentially arguing now for like a, you know, like a app based surveillance medical state. Mm. Um, yeah. And I found that the that that it is it feels like it comes out of like a certain desperation when they look around and they mm-hmm. see like uh, Trump screaming at governors and the governors having to bid each other up on masks and like they, yeah. they it just feels like chaos and you have like Trump going out saying like we're going to have like drive through testing and Google's going to make this thing. Do you remember that? Like none of that has happened. That was like four weeks ago or something like that. I know. Um, that was and yeah. that nothing you, we can't count on the federal government. The head of it is fucking Jared Kushner, you know, and. And then you try and look for some sort yeah. of, like, uh, something that makes sense. And then you just have these vague stories that Korea has gotten it right, you know. And so they're just like, oh, it <laughs> yeah. must be Korea that's doing it right. And, then, and also right. Taiwan, I think, as well. Um, although the, Taiwan has, did a better job of containing uh, coronavirus than Korea by far. And I feel like Korea, for some reason, gets all of the, the, the sort of credit So right I was talking now. to my friend um, who's Taiwanese. Um, but living overseas. And he was saying that uh, Taiwan doesn't do the testing that South Korea does. So we actually don't even, we might not even know nearly yeah. the extent. I think South Korea is getting praise for the testing. Mm. For Are they tracking, how are they tracking it? Are they like through Samsung phones or <laughs> what? Through apps. Apps. You have, Everyone you have has to an app. register Everyone an app. Has the app. So yeah. I was going to ask you guys, because yeah. I know Jay earlier today was saying like, um, that, there's a certain like reservation about in America. There's a reservation about tracking, right? Because that's like Big Brother, um, and I've, I've seen people like see like don't let Silicon Valley, don't let Google and Facebook track you, blah blah. blah. They're private companies, disaster mm-hmm. capitalism. Um, is there a trust? Is it different then when it's, a, it's the government and let's say it's a, gov- it's a government that is accountable slash trustworthy, which I assume that is kind of the general attitude among South Korean citizens towards the South Korean government. Does that make a difference, uh, or is the distinction between private and public at this point gone? Because it's not like the government can write an app by itself. It's also using its own companies or some private company. Yeah. Right. So right. during during MERS, which hit Korea pretty hard, basically Samsung, and this was when uh, you know you had the former mm-hmm. leader of Korea, who is the dictator's daughter, <laughs> and you know. Extremely inca- My mom went to college with her. Yeah. I don't know if I'm blowing up my mom's spot, but my mom went to college oh, yeah? with her and said she was like, she was like very unimpressed. So Jared Kushner, <laughs> basically. Yeah, but but yeah, she basically exactly. panicked when MERS happened, and she let the head of Samsung, I believe, run the response team, and he really screwed up because she, you know, she was I don't know, maybe she was inspired by Milton Friedman or something like that, and she decided that the private sector should lead. And uh, I think that the government response here was a response to that, you know, because they remembered how bad the private sector and how bad chaos had 
led to a, ter a bad result for Korea and that they had turned around and decided that it was okay to have this is that like, this is all conjectured. Tammy, if I'm wrong, please can uh, please correct me about all this. But um, <laughs> this is just based on what I read, and that you know, the irony of it is that people will say, "Hey, Korea had a." They all do this because they're like sheep, and because of Confucianism, and because they they're an ethno state mm -hmm. that believes in the common good. But you know, the the right. irony of it is that they are doing this because they threw that president out. You know, and they they decided that the last response wasn't yeah. adequate and that it actually is like a civil uh, disobedience and everything like that. That and and, you know, a mass movement that that created these conditions. And so it certainly is not because of, you know, Confucianism. I think mean, that's absurd, but it also isn't because like the people just do what the government <laughs> tells them to do. It's actually quite the opposite of that. I think like we can trust that Koreans have essentially like made a bargain that they're comfortable with. And I think it's, you know, reasonable to assume that they exercise volition in the same ways we do. And I think you've pointed out the media hits that, you know, are very contrary to that. But, yeah, my understanding is in the construction and response this time, there was close coordination between the government and a couple of tech companies and the Pharmacists Association to develop this app that would work both for mass distribution. And then, you know, they're using like whatever that phone alert system is, um, you know, in a localized way. So, I mean, some of it is honestly to me like a little bit alarming or raises an eyebrow or two because yeah. the level of information <clears throat> on totally. the positive patients is like there's a shit ton of information out there and to know like their exact like whatever geo stamp yeah. or whatever did you see one of the freaky. responses came out um, or one of the reports came out and they were like a 41 year old man who was attending a sexual harassment seminar <laughs> tested <Yeah>. positive for <laughs> coronavirus. Yeah. And so, you know, like, like exactly. that person is not particularly sympathetic, but you know, like when, when privacy right. is, is, yeah, is compromised in that sort of way, it's difficult here in the United States from what I can tell Annie to yeah. answer your original question, what I think will happen. And, you know, once again, this is total 3am right at speculation, <laughs> but I is informed 3am Right, a speculation. It's look, Apple and Google are working together to make a tracking uh -huh. app, right? Um, states by the New York City, Connecticut, and New Jersey announced today that they're going to make a tri-state uh. tracking system. Uh. You know, California, Gavin Newsom is all in on testing, and UCSF is all in on testing. UCSF is a massively wealthy, mm -hmm. powerful hospital. Mm -hmm. and what I imagine will happen is that within states, you will have right. that type of coordinated thing, yeah. and that people within states will download these apps, people within states will do track and trace and it will just depend on what state you're in and what right. type of finances they have and what sort of technological capabilities they have. So here in Northern California, I feel totally perfectly comfortable in saying that in a month, first of all, we will have very low cases because we you know, didn't have that bad of an outbreak. But I also think that we'll have probably a app-based test and tracing that in a civil liberty sense will be absolute nightmare, <laughs> you know? But we'll probably keep people, you know, we'll, we'll contain the spread. Now, if you live in, uh, you know, as you do, like even in Philadelphia, I don't know, you know, like that's a lot harder. But uh, I can imagine that in, in the wealthiest areas in this country that they will have Apple? That. Sorry. So is that I mean, would you guys use it? Oh, yeah, I would use it. Yeah. Apple and Google yeah. are doing it for everyone, yeah. or it's just for California and New York is doing their own? Uh, they're going to try and roll it out slowly, but, um, you know, yeah. I think if they started it, they would certainly start it where they are, you know. That's, that's is... the thing, like, I can't imagine trusting these companies and the government 
with all that stuff, even though by default I already have. Um, is that attitude different among South Koreans? I guess, Tammy, from all your interviews, is that the sense you got that they trust the government even though... I mean, I guess the other question is, like, obviously, the government and these, like, big Chebol and Samsung and LG, they're all already closely tied together. Is there a sense that if there is a conflict yeah, is in the true. end, the government will win out over these companies? Whereas in America, we pretty much think that the government has already outsourced everything and sold its soul to these companies. I mean, when I think when I think they're thinking less about the private company's interaction in this and more about their relationship to the state in healthcare. Period. Because of the nationalized health system, there they're very used to kind of giving your social security number and then accessing all these services. And so when you're going to the pharmacy and you're giving your social security number right. to buy your two cheap masks a week, or you're going to a testing site and presenting that card once again, it's like, well, yeah, right. that's that's my healthcare right. provider, which is also the right. state. Yeah. And so they already have all of this sort of bio data. So maybe that's part of the reason it's a bit more comfortable. I mean, I think we should all obviously be worried about all this tech stuff, but um, that is generally what I hear. That, I think, oh, yeah, I think that one is the same way. I think people here will mm -hmm. capitulate almost immediately. Um, and I think in other places they won't, you know, but I, I think that, mm -hmm. uh, again, and I think it is really a class thing more than anything else. I think in wealthy areas that they will allow this, you know, because I think uh -huh. a, they probably, um, really don't want to, you know, like the, the, they are also the population that can shelter in place and work from home. You know, they're also right. the, population that you know does not need to go out to work and make terrible compromises with their health and i think that like yeah. they're also trust in their local governments you know like london breed i don't think is a particularly great mayor for poor people but man oh she is the no. most popular person in this area right now because she yeah because she shut really? down the city a week early yeah because and um yeah and yeah. when and she's constantly compared to Bill de Blasio, who in many ways is a much better mayor for poor people, you know, but, um, you know, Bill de Blasio, I don't know if, he, I don't know if but he can ever go this. outside again, you know, for the next, and, and London oh Breed God. is like this avenging Thank hero. You. And I think that there will be this regional pride <laughs> that will come out of it and that people up here will immediately consent to be having all their information tracked and, you know, their temperatures logged into this, into this thing. And they'll want to do it because I think wow. that in some ways, and this is one of the ironies of it, is because they want to see themselves as a society like Korea, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. They want to see themselves as yeah. like a modern, advanced society that is not like the rest of the country and is not like Trump, you know, and that they have their own right. autonomy yeah. and that they're more advanced like evolutionarily than the rest of the country. And yeah. to do that, they're going to just have to basically like see the tiny fraction of privacy that we have left. And I think most people will just do it. I would, I, I would, I would, I would do it as well because I wouldn't want to be shamed for not doing it. <laughs> also, <I> mean, <laughs> it's basically like next door, you know. Like we already have next door, and so like this is basically just like virus, <laughs> virus no, next, next door. door. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, as if next door wasn't toxic enough. I think. <laughs> I mean, but this doesn't, why doesn't this get you guys to like a Bernie type Medicare for all thing in the Bay Area? Like the pride is like in the wrong place around this response of the, um, the lockdown. Well, this is something I think about all the time. Or I've been thinking about quite a bit. And, you know, I just sometimes I tweet jokes about it. But, you know, like the truth is I think about it a lot seriously. Which is like if there is a California nationhood, you know, which has always been like a crackpot idea, but always a 
real idea. And like, you know, it's going to be pushed now in this time of unprecedented emergency. And I do think that if California was able to pass uh, a Medicare for all type bill, that they would pass a Medicare for all bill, don't you? Um, and I yeah. think that, 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 you know, every, it, it, it would be run, uh, the, the, con- the country of California would be run by like uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, and, and Google, but everyone oh would God. have health care. You know, it would actually be very much like Korea, where it's like run by Samsung and Hyundai, oh, and, and, and <laughs> everyone terrifying. has health care, and, you know, they have technocratic uh, responses and, and solutions yeah, to things I mean, like pandemics. We have the state-by-state response, it really does feel like America once again, has never been a real a real country, right? Yeah. Um, we had this fiction, right. you know, maybe in the middle of the last century, but for the most part, it's always felt like at least two countries, maybe three or four. Um, thinking about, just like speculative, I'm thinking about this idea of like culture, right? I think a big, I think a big question is um, when, you're, when your economy is going up and when you trust the government, well, I mean, first, when the economy is going up, you trust the government more, right? Things yeah. are going well. And I think yeah. that there's, you know, in terms of like con- addressing this notion that, oh, Confucianism is why all these countries work together, right? I think it's actually, it's obviously, you know, the opposite, right? That because the government is so effective at implementing these, like, these economic policies and precisely because these are sort of, you know, Korea and Taiwan and obviously the four Asian tigers, right? These were really sort of state-led forms of capitalism. Not that free market capitalism has ever happened, mm-hmm. really. But uh, precisely because right. of that, I think that created a sense of discipline and collective collectivity. And California yeah. is like a fifth Asian tiger, right? It's like a sixth, yeah. right? It's it's powered by, it's pow- I mean, it's the most powerful um, economic engine in the whole country. There is a sense oh, of yeah, every generation close, is getting yeah. better. Uh, it's very, it's very Asian, very, um, right? It's very multicultural. <laughs> I, I'm assuming if in certain parts of California, well, the difference is the, the Asian tigers were, they grew a lot, but they were also able to tamp down inequality because of their strong uh, public infrastructure and like healthcare and, and, and social welfare and education. So California doesn't have that going for it. But I think there is a sense of, you know, the rest of the country yeah. is like tearing its hair out, trying to fight each other precisely because they're trying to fight over the scraps of what's left of this country uh, in a lot of parts of the country. Whereas in California, everyone's like, it's cool. Like the pie is just getting bigger and bigger, right? But the counterpoint to that is Gavin Newsom just in the last week of February gave his state of the state and it was 45 minutes on the fucking homeless crisis. You know, so I think like California is actually like in a very bad way in a lot right. of ways. And this has been a sort of a branding moment for California and the Bay Area to sort of, you know, clean up some of that. But like when you actually look at all the housing stuff going on, especially, I mean, wow, it's really quite bleak. Yeah, I, I lived here for eight years, six years between 2004 and 2010. And then I just moved back a few months ago. And even in the, that period, you know, this 10 years that I've been gone, the the uh, the escalation of the homeless crisis is shocking. You know, like I, yeah. I, I didn't think I would be shocked by it because I had heard about it and because I was aware of it. But then you just drive by some of these homeless encampments and it's yeah. it's shocking. And so um, you're right. The veneer and that's just of, the street of like, of course. yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And then, right. Um, you know, there are these weird mm-hmm. solutions like they have RVs and stuff like that, yes. you know, but yeah. um, it does sort of there's this veneer of California as this, you know, that it could just be this sort of like amazing country by itself but then the bay area homelessness 
problem, I think, does does cut against that. I would think, though, that um, you know, if we didn't have to pay federal taxes, that that would be. <laughs> I'm just pushing this. You think you're paying federal taxes to California? Um, <laughs> as the you're just doubling the state right, exactly. Uh, so the the last thing I think we should talk about, and we almost feel compelled to talk about, is. Andrew Yang, and not just about, you know, as everyone I think who's listening to this knows, Andrew Yang wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, I think it is. And, you know, he used some language that I think is very unfortunate. And, you know, his point was also unfortunate, but the language made the unfortunate point even more unfortunate. Just saying that, like, if Asians, uh, that Asians are Americans and that we should show our patriotism during this time by wearing red, white, and blue and, you know, like going out and highlighting the success stories that we are. Um, now this was, I've never, you know, my friend Frank Xiang wrote like that he's never seen Asian American Twitter more unified what about you know, than, than <laughs> getting mad at, than getting mad at, uh, Andrew Yang, which was true. Everyone was very mad at him, but, um, yeah, look, I, you know, um, this is a difficult time for people who are East Asian in America yeah. and, um, you know, people are trying to think of solutions. Like, well, what did you guys think of, of Yang's? Of, you know, outside of the obvious, like, horror, like, well, wh- wh- why do you think, like, what what did you make of that response? So I guess I'll be contrarian and not pile on top of him, even though you could obviously do that. I think two things. One is, like, are you really mad at Andrew Yang or are you mad at America? Because I kind of think his diagnosis is more or less not that wrong. Like, when, like if you are an Asian American, you do tend to get these looks and get the sense that you don't fully belong here. Uh, now you might not agree with the solution of kind of leaning into patriotism and all that. Like certainly that's not not my style, but I don't think that the opposite reaction is like just pretend there isn't a problem or like I'm just proud to be who I am no matter what. And like you know I'm sure most you guys know and the listeners know what it's like to not look like everyone else and you can't just be proud of who you are. Um, you have to kind of deal with that and uh, what the, what that feels like sometimes. Um, uh, and, and I think the second point, I kind of mentioned this earlier, he has this one line that I thought was actually pretty poignant where he says that you can't just, um, I, I forget what he says, but something you can't just like get rid of racism by being moralistic about it. You can't just shame racists, yeah. right? Because I mean, we've right. seen how that yeah. has worked out um, for woke, woke culture and politics. Right? Doesn't work. Uh, not, not, yeah. The wokest politicians no, are not the most work. successful ones. Um, so there is, you got to do something about it. You have to do something practical to address that. I, again, I don't, it's not really my style to kind of start wearing like red, white, and blue, have an American flag pin like Obama famously could not wear. Um, <laughs> it would, honestly, it would probably, <laughs> the sad thing about it is it would probably work, you know? Like if you were like a big USA flag and a, I'm, not, I'm Korean, I'm not Chinese hat, I bet you would get less, <laughs> I bet you would get less harassment on the street. <laughs> Tomorrow you're gonna open an Etsy store, aren't you? Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> um, Tammy, what do you think of it? Do you do you agree with Andy yeah. that that you know there is a sort of part of it that is like pragmatic and true, and that you know all of us getting super mad about it, you know, we can get mad about it, but you know, like there is some truth well, to like, to what he was saying. Yeah, I think Andy's made some good points, and I I mean, I guess my first reaction to it was, I don't know, I mean. I feel like I've been such a bad Asian American through this process because my initial reaction to the reports of the hazing and hate crimes was sort of like, I'm sure that happens, but it's probably not the biggest problem right now. And, um, you know, and that's 
like completely insensitive for people who are actually suffering that. And I think like obviously there has been since the early days, like a proliferation of those incidents that we obviously really need to take seriously. But um, I think to me, like what bothered me was it kind of fit into a certain, I guess, like a very like self-obsessed, like navel gazing thing that I've seen along among a lot of Asian Americans during this process that necessarily translates into then like a performative like oh but we're not that we're this instead of like what are the reasons why like people are suffering and like what are the things that we share with other people who are going to suffer from this um and how can we make that like a community struggle so that's kind of my cheesy socialist answer to that yeah which is why i was saying earlier i think it is effective (laughs) instead of shaming people for racism saying like look racism actually led to racism slash you know, I don't know if what would nationalism, exceptionalism, sort of dividing up people uh, is obviously like, like a terrible thing to do at this time, just from a, just from a public health standpoint, right? Yeah. Right. That's true. I yeah. I, I felt, uh, Tammy, I think I felt similar to you in a lot of ways, which was like, look, I thought the article was terrible, and I think wearing red, white, red, white, and blue is difficult. <laughs> but I thought I had two reactions. The first is like it was essentially what our parents <laughs> would have written, you know. Like it's yeah, like, and that's, that's what was true. the most confusing about it to me. It was just like, is Andrew Yang like? Did he just immigrate from China, like, or from Taiwan, like, in, like or in like like ten years ago? Like, what is he talking about? Um, like, wasn't he born here? Like, obviously he had to be to. He was. To, uh, he was goth in the nineties. So he must have, you know. Yeah, no, it was just so weird because it was like that's like basically like, I don't know. It's like what our parents would say, you know. It's like like. Like, because they have to survive, you know, and it doesn't seem like right. for me, like at least Andrew Yang's life where he went to like Exeter, you know, uh, would would is something or maybe Andover, one of the two <laughs> where it would be where that would be drilled into him, especially after like 25 years after college or however. I think it's about 25 years, you know, being being some dude, you know, who's like a lawyer and then ran a test prep company and then ran for fucking president, you know? It's yeah. not like he's constantly thinking of survival and just being like, how do I keep my family safe? Okay, I'm going to make right. these compromises. Um, so that was the first thing. And I look, that's just about Andrew Yang itself. But yeah, the second part of it was that it seemed like a lot of the reaction to that piece, you know, was, was and it's something that I found very interesting, which is that like the people who are closest to the most assimilated are not our parents, it's us, you know? It's like a second generation mm-hmm. people. The people who are closest to whiteness and like being, having basically yeah. an American flag around them at all times are like us, you know? Right. And that we're the ones who are just like, you can't do that. But in fact, we signal that all the time, you know? Like I'm wearing yeah. fucking green light Brooklyn bookstore <laughs> shirt on, you know? It's like screaming Wait, you're saying light. that you subconsciously <laughs> yeah. are uh, trying to signal that you are... No, I don't think we were signaling, but I think we just signal it because we grew up in this country, you know, and that uh, that it is strange to then just say all of that, all these mechanisms, all these subconscious things that we do all the time and we feel some shame about, like, actually, we never do them. And the only person who has ever breached that subject is Andrew Yang in this op-ed, you know, like the, the reality is like everybody kind of at some point in their life, hopefully not anymore, but, you know, went through this um, and dealt with it. And uh, I don't know. I just found it. I'm no, not making but it this it seems point to me like, clear, but in I don't my know. head it makes a lot of sense, which is just Just from, a, like, you know, how, however much I know about you guys, like, all three of us probably went through this phase of being pretty, like, monolingual and as teenagers and kind of going back and actually looking at where our parents came from. And, uh, and I, for myself, that's been very therapeutic, like, to be honest, like, 
to like know who I am and where my mm-hmm. parents were in the seventies before, you know, like I'm not like I don't consider myself having like been part of this country from the seventeen seventies, right? And uh, which is what I was told in high school, right? <laughs> um, but then you're, you're gonna have a lot of friends who don't want to think about that, but they don't know how to process that obvious contradiction at the heart of like what they've been told and what they what mm-hmm. they are. And uh, I kind of think that, you know, maybe Andrew Yang, maybe I'm going way too deep and this is not what Andrew Yang is talking about at all. But I kind of think that what he's, that, that is what kind of what he's getting at. There's a real contradiction in being Asian American. And I think, like you were saying, Jay, like the response is interesting because a lot of these responses are saying, I don't have to prove that I'm American. Of course I'm American. I'm like, no, I actually have felt my entire life that there is some, that it hasn't been satisfying just to say I'm an American because, and like, I like football and I like beer and I speak English. Like I actually... You know, you, I don't know if you, you have these friends who say like, oh, I hate when they assume I can speak another language. I only speak English. And like, as if that's something to be proud of, right? Uh, whereas I was always ingrained yeah, with yeah. deep that's shame a, about that. Yeah, yeah, always a paradox in my head, which I did write yeah. about in my book, but, you know, it's not been published yet. But, you know, there's this thing where it's just like every Asian dude had, on social media posts something about the time when they were walking through their Brooklyn or, you know, Manhattan lobby and somebody thought that they were a delivery guy, you know? And that this is something <laughs> that I think informs a lot of this conversation about Andy, yeah. Andrew Yang. Yeah. They get super mad about it, you know, and they're just right, like... Right, 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 uh, yeah. And it's happened to me, and it's like, it's uncomfortable, but I, it's honestly more uncomfortable right, right. for the other person, you know, because they're always some, like, white liberal, <laughs> and they're, like, horrified was, was, that was, they've was done this. But, like, so I was like, oh, I'm very awkward. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, no. <laughs> um, this, uh, this, this thing, like, the objection right. that, that, that the people have is not being called asian the objection mm-hmm. they have is being called mm-hmm. poor you know like that's yeah. that's the problem is like and that's the distinction that they make they're like oh i'm not one of these right. like you know like right, uh, right, right. fresh off the boat undocumented delivery boys who don't speak any english keep their head down and like you know like uh like have no interiority and are just like little robots like you know zooming through the city like i am like a right, right, right. journalist right. or a doctor or something like that and i found that the irony of the response to Andrew Yang, which is yeah, that exactly. a lot of it was that, you know, a lot of it was like, I'm in, I don't need to do that because like, right. I'm a doctor. Yeah. I don't have to do that because I wrote like right. a fucking novel or something like that. You know, like I'm right. not calling out any specific novelist because I, in my head, I don't know it, but there's yeah. a lot of Korean novelists <laughs> now. Um, but, uh, <laughs> complete plausible deniability, but like it's, it's, uh, it, it is, that is a part yeah. that's always been troubling to me. And that's something that I think the three of us agree upon, which is like this frustration with that style of identity Absolutely. politics, you know, which is that yeah. like, like we belong here because we're right. successful, you know, and, uh, and you must respect like everything that I present in front of you as my identity. But the things that I'm presenting in front of you are actually all markers right. of like white upper middle class life, you know? And, right. and so then that's a deep irony for me, which is just like, I am saying that Andrew Yang is bad for saying what I'm also yeah. saying, you know, and that that yeah. that that conflict right. I think is at the core of all of this, you know, like it's not just like an right. irony within this one specific instance; it's just the irony of all sort of like, you know, like upper middle class ascendant identity politics. And then, and I think the problem with his reaction and other, and people similar to him also is this kind of erasure of people who probably don't think of themselves as Asian American who are. Are in fact, just new immigrants or visiting, right. pe- you know, or somehow more, or people right. who are more transnational than us, right? Who are truly binational yeah. or bicultural and they're suffering this stuff. And yeah. this whole reaction of like 
proving your Americanness, oozing your class identity, whatever, like that's also irrelevant for certain people who are suffering the same sorts of discrimination. Um, yeah. And that isn't really discussed at all. Yeah, like go to like any actual delivery guy <laughs> and be like, you know, like we're both Asian American and you're like, what the fuck yeah. are you talking about? And then totally, you'll be like, listen, yeah. man, we're like descended from the activist lineage of Grace Lee Boggs and they'll just be like, I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry, I don't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, right. it's uh, I don't know. It's, it's one of those thorny things. So the last thing I wanted to ask about this mm-hmm. and then we, I think we should go is like, some of the responses, you know, and look, I, whenever somebody makes this type of response, I feel very, very, like, there's a warm feeling in my heart towards them, but then there's a, sort of this dread as well. So, like, I saw an op, uh, uh, op-ed in the Washington Post, I think it was, again, talking about how, you know, this is a time for us to reach out and build solidarity with other groups, you know, like, this is a time for us to mm-hmm. come out and make a stronger version of what Asian American means. This is a time for us to... Uh, atone for the sins of like anti-blackness within the Asian community. Like, what what do you think about that? Because I think that if we can say that there is like a strong, um, progressive voice and a call that is coming out of all of this from Asian Americans who are academics, Asian Americans who are writers, that that would be it. Like, don't you think that's it? Like, that's sort of like what what those people are saying. Like, we should use this as a way to like reach out and build real solidarity. Like, do you think that that's something that's possible? Like, where do you, uh, right Sol- now? Solidarity over what, though? Corona? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, that, that's a question, you know? Like, what, what, are we, what, what are we reaching out for? You know? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, like, right. This was my bad. I'm sorry. And, like, you know, like, uh, yeah. It's, it's. Yeah. I mean, I guess I was kind of just cheerleading something like that, but I guess I would frame it slightly differently, which is that, you guys probably saw like Kinga Yamada Taylor had was tweeting about and then had a piece in the New Yorker that was basically just mm. reality has endorsed Bernie Sanders. Mm. Like this whole Corona moment, like endorses everything that we've been fighting for as democratic socialists yeah. or, you know, people on the left. Um, to me, that's what this moment is about. Like, and like the race piece can be a part of that, especially as we're now seeing like all these racial disparities in infections and deaths. But I don't I don't know what like specifically like a POC like movement building would look like in this particular moment. Like to me, I'm kind of obsessed with like mutual aid right now and then just like using mutual aid efforts to like demonstrate the need for like an overhaul of this entire system. So what do you mean by mutual aid? Like what if you can define like in the apartment building that I live in, it's a really big complex in Brooklyn and we have twelve hundred units. So it's like a ton of people and we've organized like we were doing a lot of housing organizing organizing over the past few years to prevent evictions. And now we're using that network to try to help neighbors. And so it's kind of this, you know, assistance network where for people who can't leave their homes at all, we're doing the grocery shopping for them, you know, small things like charitable things, but kind of using that to organize and like that on a larger scale accumulated through this epidemic, I feel could be like the groundwork for more of the sort of like socialist organizing that I want to see, but I don't know that that will be like, I don't really know if this moment to me feels like a kind of racial solidarity moment necessarily. No, me neither. Yeah. It's more of like an economic one. I mean, I think you're, I think you're right. If if we actually had like the healthcare system of East Asia and like testing and masks, then a lot that would solve a lot of the racism problem because people wouldn't be scapegoating and mad, um, which is kind of a general historical rural. My kind of, this might be my like overly academic, like chin scratchy, type of response, but I kind of think, like, <laughs> did you guys see this article that, I guess, is a conspiracy that 
um, 5G network, 5G towers are causing um, oh, yeah, people's yeah, yeah, bodies yeah, yeah. to be prone to the coronavirus. And 5G, of course, is like well, Huawei, the China company, is behind. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Uh, my, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of like building the blocks to this. I might write about this at some point. I really think that a lot of what's come out, not necessarily uh, exclusively this, but I think a lot of what's coming out is anti-Chinese antagonism that predates coronavirus. And the coronavirus is just kind of giving, yeah. mm-hmm. as I wrote elsewhere, like a perfect metaphor, right, for this conspiracy theory. It's uh-huh. a, this invisible global thing, um, just like 5G waves, I guess. Um, and I think that until, so the, the <laughs> yeah. pessimistic side wow. could be like, until we deal with what's going on between Euro America and China, I think a lot of this is going to continue. Or the optimi- or the, uh, the more practical side would be like the thing to do would be um, to perhaps address that. Like not so much like obviously like yes on a day to day level you do want um, you do want to just kind of like push back against the sort of divide and conquer this group versus that group type of thing that happens in this country. Like Trump is going to run on anti China. He's kind of already said this. He's going to run on an anti China platform to win the election. Right. Basically he's trying to win on the race racist vote. I guess you would call it. Um, yeah, but more broadly, mm-hmm. like it's not. I mean, I guess it's not at all mutually exclusive with what Tammy was saying, right? Some sort of broader universal policies that are inclusive of uh, national, mm-hmm. but also international cooperation, or at least solidarity with like people, migrants, let's say, um, within this country, but perhaps yeah. even more generally. Um, I mean, I don't know at the foreign policy level what's possible. Yeah, but I, 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 I kind of think there's these bigger forces mm-hmm. that are setting the parameters of all this that. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. some of the bigger forces, I think, are positive. uh, Well, not positive, but, you know, like in terms of, like, how bad this xenophobia is coming out of Trump, which is that, like, you know, like, just like we were talking about how Italy is not going to be able to extricate itself from China, the United States is not going to be able to extricate itself from China. Like, it's going to make some very, very flashy, big moves of manufacturing out of China. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a blip, you know? Everyone is going to quietly still go to the same factories are going to still use like apple isn't going to start making iphones in vietnam i I find that very hard to believe or like bangladesh or or especially not here you know (laughs) and so i think that there will be you know like if you do believe in the model which is that like you know like corporate america is runs everything oligarchy etc etc then like there's no actual incentive to to piss china off that badly and i think that that is proven by how quickly he stopped saying Chinese virus, you know, but mm. uh, to the to the activist point and the idea of solidarity, Tammy, I tend to agree with you, and you know, I think Andy U.S. as well. Like, what would the ask mm. be? You know, like would it be like, hey, we screwed up, and which doesn't no. make any sense, you know, or would it be like, hey, I also understand that I'm a minority now, <laughs> and uh, you guys also have it bad. I mean, that's <laughs> so fucked up. You're just like, listen, you guys are right, you know, like this, this is this whole like. Uh, person of color thing is like <laughs> not great, you know. Like let's 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 work together. We need you right now. Like uh, I don't know what the ask would be, and so you know, like when I said that I feel like that that is the mm-hmm. right idea, you know, that that is the right path, yeah. that that is the thing we should say. I'm being very sincere about that. I just don't understand what the I mean mechanics of it. Are, I don't like I don't know if we're going to too, too long time wise, but I do think that I mentioned this in our discussions before today that um, there's, and I think Tammy mentioned this also, there's something interesting going on with the sort of racial, the attempt to kind of 
turn the turn to turn all the data convert all the data into quote unquote racial data. Um, yeah. And like, uh, to what extent is this just a question that these are economic? There's the very obvious way in which economics are going to determine, you know, what neighborhood you live in, how, uh, access to healthcare. It's going to determine sort of variable factors. And then the difference in economics, uh, by like almost by definition, is going to also produce different racial effects, right? Like this group gets hurt more worse than that group. But then I think a lot of people are kind of trying, trying to spin this data into like uh, something that's like not economic or beyond economics, right? And this is kind of this thing that has been going on in this country for the last few years, like, like race and class are not the same thing. Economics is different than race. And I do kind of think that, um, you know, this is, we're kind of getting off topic here, but like uh, if we, I think my general feeling has always, is mostly that if you kind of focus on broad universal uh, attempts to address economic inequalities, that in and of itself already addresses right racial inequalities because racial inequalities are so uh, bound up with economic ones. And then this isn't <laughs> Chapo Trap House, Andy. But, yeah, come on. No. <laughs> are you on Jacobin I'm Radio playing. right now talking to Boscar <laughs> yeah. about identity well, politics? But, but. Like, come on. Like, like every every. Did you see that statistic today that every single person who has died in St. Louis has mm. been black? Like there's been not one person who died right, in St. Yeah. Louis who wasn't black. Like I, I think that that yeah, uh, I mean, like look, you can discuss like the all the economic and societal issues that lead to a higher mortality rate um, and a higher infection rate within these neighborhoods or within these communities. But I think that the results are like I think that that what the numbers that we're seeing right now are so mm -hmm. obviously skewed that it's yeah. impossible to have like a conversation with, you know, that would be more universal about it. You know, like it's, it, it's just like, I, I was expecting that it would be bad and it was sh like, and I'm not saying this to like big up myself. I think everybody was expecting it to be bad right. and it's still shocking. You know, it's like, yeah, you, you read things like that and you're like, wow, every single person who died of coronavirus and St. Louis sure. to this day has but been I guess, I guess my like question, the, I guess what I was suggesting is in terms of political framing, it's just, it would just be kind of awkward to be like, our group, yeah. like our bad versus your group, you know, like, right? As opposed to a oh, universal yeah, yeah, thing, yeah, like, yeah, we yeah, all yeah, deserve yeah. better, yeah. we all deserve yeah. the highest quality, blah, 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 yeah. right? For sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think, like, programmatically, like, to me right now, we're talking about two things, like, race-wise. We're talking about the fact that, like, black people are dying more from this. They just are, and it's fucking crazy. The numbers are fucking crazy. And, of course, black his people have this, like, horrible history of, you know, mistreatment in our healthcare system also. So there's all this shit swirling around that. And then the other piece we're trying to square with that is like anti-Asian racism. And to me, like the anti-Asian racism is of course about racism, but it's also about like this deep anxiety that everyone has that they're going to die, yeah. that they're sick and they don't have access to anything and they're going to die. And I think like the response for me to both of those things is like, we need to have a Medicare for all system. We need to have a universal yeah. healthcare system that can answer that. You know, and that's just one piece of a welfare state, but that's like so obviously. And I, I would say the new spin right on now. things is I, I don't know about you guys. Whenever I would see Bernie talk about Scandinavia, the obvious, the obvious other example is East Asia that have mm -hmm. new and very successful. Yeah. Now, as we've seen with this pandemic, probably the most successful entire world um, healthcare systems, universal healthcare systems that have addressed this. So it could kind yeah. of broaden the conversation from you know, are we Scandinavia or not, which is kind of a dumb conversation. 
to can we right. learn from Taiwan, South Korea, <laughs> our, our two countries, which are basically American colonies right. in the first place, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> they're, they're, they're so, they're, yeah, like, the borders are basically open between those countries and the United States. So, uh, and that would, I think that would yeah. be like a really new, fresh way to, to, to move the conversation forward. Time to say Thanks for listening. Uh, we're going to try and do this as much as we can. Like, I, you know, I, I at least had a very good time and we're going to try and bring on guests from time to time that will come and, you know, inform you on things that we might, the three of us might not know about. But yeah, please subscribe. Please tell your friends about it. And yeah, we'll, we'll be talking to you soon.